Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Nothing is more painful than watching young parents explain their intention to raise their children differently than their parents, or observing young mothers hovering over grandmothers, micromanaging their every move, scolding, correcting, worrying, overprotecting, and gossiping, all based on advice from their therapist or some silly blog post about the right way to parent, according to the latest study. It's not that the grandparents are any better than their idiotic children or that their example should be followed. God forbid. I mean, look at what the grandparents produced. According to scripture, The unfixable root of the problem is that the grandparents, their children, and the grandchildren are all human beings. Let me repeat, according to the Bible, human beings are the problem. I know, I know. This will never air on PBS. The hubris of the human being and the naive optimism of young couples that somehow things will be different on their watch is the last laugh of the scriptural God. Well, not the last laugh because God gets to keep laughing again and again as the Byzantine hymn says at every generation that dares to bring its dirge before the gospel of Christ. What we learn from this teaching in Luke's account of the genealogy is that over and over again in each generation, no matter how hopeful God's intervention through his instruction, we prove ourselves to be the children, not of God, but of oppression. Worse, we become the progenitors of oppression. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 24. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 479 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This crops up not only in Exodus, as we heard recently on Father Paul's podcast, but in Deuteronomy because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquity of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. Where do we hear this, Rich? In 
Leviticus. And it comes up elsewhere. And after years of hearing scripture and teaching scripture and doing my best to submit the darkness inside of me and the ugliness and the wickedness inside of me to scripture as I work through the darkness and ugliness inside the story of scripture, what I've come to understand is it's not a question of doing it better this time around. Scripture is announced to each generation. I've said before on this podcast that I like the expression, the phrase from that hymn that we sing on Holy Friday. Each generation brings its funeral dirge because it's the same thing over and over again. We all come before the gospel with the same thing over and over again. And the gospel pronounces its wise instruction over and over again in order to redeem us. It's the same pattern in Genesis. Scripture has to intercede with its seed. And when scripture intercedes in a family to supplant whatever it is a family thinks it goes by as its reference, it's either accepted or rejected. And if it's rejected, the family disappears and passes away like everything else in human civilization. Each family has its insanity. And please don't use this word from popular psychology, people's brokenness. Because when you speak that way, you are allowing people to fancy themselves a victim when in fact each of us are abusers. The only one who is broken is Christ. Remember, there's only one victim in Scripture, that is God. The rest of us are abusers. If we're going to use a word from psychology, let's take the word insanity. Each family has its own insanity. So if there's any hope for any tribe, any family, it's that someone would replace the seed of your father, your biological father, your adopted father, whatever. As it happens in Genesis, you would replace the seed of the patriarch with the seed of the instruction. But don't be fooled. The instruction is there to rescue you from your insanity, which is still there. It's not curable. This is a point that I've insisted upon over the years, and it goes against the grain of all of this popular talk of healing and fixing, which people are infatuated with, Rich. Scripture is there to guard your steps despite your insanity and your corruption. It's there to protect you and to safeguard you in the wilderness. Why am I taking this little digression Because we see this pattern here in the genealogy in Luke. In each generation, you have something promising and something, let me use a soft word, disappointing. And thus far, it's framed between names. You have Joseph to Joseph, and now you have Mathat to Mathathias. Mathathias will appear again, but you have this repetition of names with 
positive and negative themes sandwiched in between, which means there's something cyclical happening. It keeps repeating itself, which to my scriptural ear means that despite the folly of human patrimony, which reflects the teaching of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, that there's a problem in your family, whoever you are, O listener, God can intervene to rescue you from yourself until we have this ultimate intervention that takes place in the birth of Jesus Christ. This cycle is something that we have to be keenly aware of when we're reading Scripture. I mean, for heaven's sake, Father Paul, he says, you know, all you have to read is the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. Then, well, actually, all you need is Genesis. Actually, all you need is Genesis 1 through 11. Actually, all you need is Genesis 1 through 3, you know, because it's cyclical. It keeps repeating the same story over and over again. We have the story of leaving the garden. We have the story of the Tower of Babel. We have the story of Noah. We have the story of going into slavery in Egypt. Remember, we just talked recently about how Joseph sells the Egyptians into slavery right before the Hebrews are brought into slavery. We have this destruction of the Egyptians as the Israelites go out, but then the Israelites sin, and then the Assyrians have to come and take them out. And then the Assyrians have to be taken out because they are too uppity, and then the Judahites sin. So the Babylonians come, but then the Babylonians have to be taken out because they get too uppity. The same story as Adam, the same story as the Tower of Babel, again and again and again, every generation receives this grace to be brought out of slavery, to be made a human, to be made a tribe, to be seen in the eyes of God, to be given this commandment, to be obedient. Then they disobey. They have to be castigated. Then they're given another opportunity, which they then blow again. And so in this story of the genealogy of Jesus, we have a microcosm. But we have so many microcosms in Scripture that it becomes the cosmos, because it's the same story happening over and over again. Last week, we talked about the problem of priest and king, which, you know, uh, longtime listeners of the podcast were like, okay, yeah, Father Mark, Dr. Benton, we know this. <laughs> the correct response is, yes, Luke, we know this. So why is Luke repeating it? This is how Scripture functions. It repeats it because this is the story. It's going to repeat itself. It's going to come back around. Today we have a verse that we're looking at to begin with, where we see the good grace that comes from God. But we already know the outcome because last week we saw that it just ended up with the corrupt priesthood and kingship of Mattathias of the Maccabees. And, you know, I... Father Mark, I'm not waiting for a big surprise here today. I mentioned the folly of using this expression, brokenness, because we heard last week that the outcome is oppression. So if you're in this lineage, you will end up as an oppressor. And let's be honest, in your own families, you end up hurting somebody. 
because that's what human beings do. They hurt their children. They hurt their spouses. They hurt their brothers and sisters. They hurt their parents because human beings are cruel, manipulative, vindictive mammals. We could learn a thing or two from the other creatures who roam upon the earth. They're much better than we are. Scripture recognizes the fact, honestly. We are sons of Yanai. We are sons of the oppressor. But now, once again in 25, we come back to Mattathias, the gift, the son of Amos, the prophet. And what does Amos do? He brings the Lord's judgment in time of plenty. So things are going well in Israel, and the Lord sends a prophet to announce destruction. That's hopeful. How do I know it's hopeful? Because I've been preaching in the United States for 20 years. It's not hopeful for me. Believe me. Try preaching Amos to people who have what they want. It does not go well for you. But it's hopeful because it's hopeful according to the teaching of Amos, in which I place my trust. It's hopeful because for people who aren't comfortable, what Amos is saying is good news. That's the hope. It's the intercession of God who put the words in Amos's mouth. Amos was nobody, a picker of figs. And God just said, you, go say this to those wealthy Americans in the Midwest who like to go fishing on the weekend or golfing instead of hear this difficult message. Go find where they're comfortable and enjoying themselves on the weekend and perturb them. Make them uncomfortable with this instruction. That's God in the story of Genesis stepping in and fathering the child of the patriarch. That's how. And of course, you have again the prophet Nahum Rich. That's the positive side of this position in this cycle of the, you know, the diptych of Mathat which overlaps with the diptych of Joseph. It's actually a triptych, which is interesting. We'll unpack that next week. The way we have this overlap between Mathat and Matathias, you know, we have already a repetition of this name, which we mentioned last time happens to be the name of the priest who becomes king in Maccabees, right? And I don't want to belabor the point, but, you know, we have these two minor prophets, a couple of my buddies here, Amos and Nahum. Amos is the one who is supported, and Nahum is the one who is comforted. This is what the word brings to the one who speaks. Why? Because that's what the one who speaks the word needs. Like you said, Father, when Amos goes and he equates the callousness of the Israelites and the Judahites with the violence of the nations, it's a double blow. He's comparing them to the nations and comparing their potentially minor deeds with these major deeds of these other nations. It's really difficult what Amos teaches. One day we'll get back to that. But with those two as the fathers, 
the father and grandfather of this Mattathias, there was a hope. There was a hope for this Mattathias that they would have listened to this teaching of the one who is supported and the one who is comforted, as harsh as those words are. The one who preaches these very difficult, painful words is the one who comforts those who listen, not comforting in the way that you want. He doesn't take the edge off, (laughs) that's for sure. But he comforts you because he gives you a way out. Here's the obedience. Fortunately, in Amos, that's just chapters one and two. There are a few more chapters you can turn and do the right thing. He always gives you a way to turn. That is the comfort and that is the support that God gives. Even when the teaching is so harsh and so cruel and so painful, there's always a way back. There's always a path that you can turn to. Shuv is the most common action that we're reading about in all these different places among the prophets, there's always a place to turn back. And I love the names that follow. We have Esli, and you and I went back and forth on this for a long time. This is a tough one, but I believe this comes from the root asl, atzal in in Hebrew, asl in Arabic, which means firmly rooted. So asl, meaning a root. The Lord is the root. And then we have the next name, which is Nagai, Naga, the illuminator. So the one who illuminates, the one who is the root, the one who gives comfort, the one who gives support, these are the ones who begat Mattathias, who then went on to beget these people who tore the people apart with their vying for power in the priesthood and kingship. This teaching gives an opportunity for the next generation, but the next generation is free to turn away from it. And of course, this word root, hesli, usl in Arabic, root, is tricky because one can't establish roots in your family. This is a painful lesson for those who are serious about Scripture. There are no roots. There are no roots in your tribe. There are no roots in your institution. You have to come back to the teaching of Christ in the gospel of Matthew. My mother and my brother and my sisters are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You are rootless. You have no place to lay your head except in the instruction. So the real question with this name Hesley And the real test, and of course the test has failed. I mean, that's the whole point of Genesis. People keep passing down sin. They don't pass down the teaching of Amos and Nahum. They are not comforted or consoled, like Rachel, who's still crying, until the gospel is preached. Then the problem is people keep turning their backs on the instruction. They keep rejecting it. So there's a test here. Which roots are we talking about, Methathias? Which roots are we talking about? We know the answer, and the names that follow will probably illuminate where this is all heading, thus fulfilling the name of Nagai. This rootedness, yes, where is your root coming from? And it's beautiful because if I can riff a little bit on the Arabic, this is not just root, but it's also family, genealogy. It fits very much in this context. If we take the Arabic meaning as what's significant in this, and don't forget what we were saying before, Jesus breaks with his genealogy. 
That's the thing, is that Jesus is the only new thing. We see so much repetition that happens in Scripture, so much repetition that happens in Scripture, until this guy Jesus breaks with the chain, breaks with the genealogy, and most importantly, breaks with the human teaching of obedience that began in Adam, which is where this begins. He breaks with that disobedience, and he's the first to remain obedient to this teaching. Doesn't make him pleasant, doesn't make him someone you want to hang out with, doesn't make him somebody you want to have a cup of coffee with, but it makes him someone you want to learn from, and that's what these books are recording. This is Luke. Don't forget, O lover of God, this is for you to understand what was taught. You are reading this, even better listening to this, so that you finally absorb this teaching and remain obedient to it. And I want to clarify something, Rich. We keep saying how Jesus breaks the cycle, Jesus intercedes. Now with the birth of Jesus, everything's going to change. When in reality, when you look at the world around us, the insanity of families, the insanity of institution, the corruption and the destruction and the ugliness and the cruelty that is passed down from generation to generation is still happening. So when we talk about Jesus breaking the cycle, the cycle hasn't been broken in everyday life. Let's just be clear on that. This is not a breaking of the cycle in history. It's a breaking of the cycle in the storyline of the Bible in this sense that the gift, just to reflect the meaning of the name, Methathias or Methat, the gift that's being offered here in this patrimony, now through Christ, is being offered to everyone. So that when the sins of your parents are visited upon the third and fourth generation, which they will be, I mean, I started out this episode explaining that as a young man, I thought, oh, if I just preach the gospel, it'll turn out differently. No. People are just as stupid and rebellious today as they were in the previous generation and the generation before. You don't have to believe me or trust me. That's just how it is. And everybody thinks they're going to do it better. It doesn't work that way. Just be faithful and submit to the gospel so that when everything shows its true face, you will have a shield and a buckler and a guidepost, as the Protestants love to talk about with their little paper magazine that they send out every week or whatever the schedule is. You will have some hope and some light in the darkness. The light in the darkness isn't whatever institution you're excited about. The light in the darkness is scripture. Because you will suffer, there will be difficulty because the sins will come to rest on your doorstep. The insanity will come to rest on your doorstep. All of the difficulties, all of the nonsense. So you can either be stuck with it and just, I don't know, suffer for no good reason, or you can have hope through this instruction. But just go back and hear Genesis. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. 
but you must master it. Those are the words that my dad and I talked about before his death. Those are words to live by and to die by, but you're never going to be able to hear those words and submit to them if you don't allow the teaching of Jesus Christ to break this cycle in your ears for your sake. But the cycle continues because scripture is literature and it's the human condition. So just give up on historicity so that you can actually gain something from this teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.